0: You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. All right, I'm gonna turn this thing on. I think. Morning. 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 So, we have a little bit smaller crew this morning, which means we can do a little uh, we can do a little sharing. Let's talk about workplace pranks. <laughs> There's a couple of groaners over here. These guys are (laughs) thinking about something. Uh, if you've ever been part of a, if you've ever been part of a team, if you've ever worked somewhere, you've probably either performed and or had one performed upon you a workplace prank. Um, I myself believed I was the expert at workplace pranks, not since I've been in the church, but back before when I was in uh, when I worked at the Sherwin-Williams paint company for you know years. Uh, when I was in management, um, there was a, one one prank that I loved to play on on the rookies. Is I'd, I'd give them something within their first week. I'd give them something. I'd say, "Hey, put this in the basement, okay? That's it." Never did I work, well I guess not never, but I never, the the place I played this break on, there was no basement. Okay, now if you can imagine a rookie employee who's afraid to ask questions, right? What do you think they're doing all day long? Looking for the basement. I had one guy that I told him, I gave him a gallon, I said, here, this has gotta go in the basement, it does not go, if it doesn't go in the basement, there's bad things, it's gotta stay cool, if it doesn't stay cool, it could set on fire, just get it in the basement, okay? (laughs) Two weeks two weeks he had looking for the basement okay he would set this gallon off to the side in a cool dark place over in a corner and hide it and then come back the next day and he would look for the basement all day long for two weeks until finally i came up to him two weeks later i'm like hey dude you find did you get that thing in the basement yet And he's like no no <laughs> It says, cause there's not a basement! And he goes, oh, okay. Like, we played pranks like that all the time. There was another one that was a little bit, uh, a little bit more difficult. Uh, we called it the ladder grab. And, uh, we told people that they would only get a raise if they could jump off of flat-footed and grab, grab ladders that were hanging up in these scaffolding. If you've ever been on a ladder before, okay, the rungs of a ladder have these little metal things on them. Did you know these little metal, uh, metal ribs? The metal ribs are turned a specific way. Okay, So when you grab them and you jump up, what happens? Like some of your flesh actually gets ripped off of your hands. And So we would have people do that, and uh, we had um, bloody people all the time. Anyways, but that was uh, not necessarily a fun one, but we did do that one. Um, Anybody else got a workplace prank that has ever been pulled on them or ever been done to them? Go for it, Caleb. I worked in a grocery store in Brookings, and they had a couple new people, and apparently they had a lot more stock than they had space for in the aisle. So they told those kids to go to Walmart and get the aisle stretcher. Go, to go get the aisle stretcher. okay? drove to Walmart and would stop their management. It's like, yeah, we need the aisle stretcher. I don't know what that is. They had to come back without it. Yeah, and that drive of shame. like That's the part I love about those type of psych- psychological things. They're like, what are we going to do? We're going to go back there and be like, they didn't have it. We're going to be fired. Yeah, I love that. Okay, go ahead, Laurie. Um, do you remember LaBelle's way back when when I've only been here six years, years, so anyway, some older people might remember the bells and you had to get your order and then it was all the stuff was in the back and so they brought it forward. So anyway I was helping with the warehouse guys, they asked me to help and Um, There was a chase lounge cushion that they needed so I ran back there and I grabbed it and one of the guys was laying underneath it and he spooked me. I screamed (laughs) so loud that the someone in the front heard, told the management that something was happening to me in the back and then came back there and I unfortunately did have to go to the bathroom right there. <laughs> so that happened. It was really bad. So, okay. so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Lori scares easily, just so you know. So if any of you would like to play some sort of prank, um, talk to Nick first beforehand. He'll give you some insight. So, yeah, okay, go ahead, Joseph. Um, on my first internship, uh, my last day of work, one uh, of my co-workers didn't show up. And so I took his office chair apart and hit the wheels. Took his office chair apart and hid the wheels. So no wheels on the office chair when he got back in. And that makes it a little bit tipsy, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he had, he had to put it all back together. Yeah. Yeah, we've done, if you, have anybody ever done one of those, the complete reversal of things? We did that. We used to do that in dorms all the time, in college dorms. we take people's dorm rooms out and put them in the front lawn, the entire dorm room. Everything. It'd be bare walls, their clothes. Everything would be intact and in order. Like, we'd make sure that it was cleaned up, but it'd all be set up perfectly on the front lawn. Perfectly. That was the best. Go ahead. Mary. Um, we, I worked at a coffee shop chain that I won't name. We had a particular gentleman. Yeah, don't say the S word here. And was very unkind every morning. No, I never worked at that one. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> But like he was not a very pleasant man, and so we always gave him decaf, and never told him. knew. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's why he was mean, one of the two, right? Like, I'm gonna be seriously mean. Yeah, I'm gonna be seriously mean if somebody switches me to decaf. Yeah, and Sally's like, yeah, you did him a favor. what what you got, Jake? Oh, I just love how Caleb brought up the aisle stretcher, because when I were landscaping, we well, you do sod, and then the new guy, hey man, we gotta go get the sod stretcher. <laughs> sod stretcher. And then you would be like digging through the workshop. I can't find it, it's in there, it's in the back. It's in there, just so <laughs> It's in the basement, go find it in the basement, right? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jerry. I had a, when I worked for furniture um, mark here in town, I, my boss decided to say, he, oh, he, he's like, I need you to go get this couch, it's 13 foot long. I'm like, okay and uh I was looking for this couch we went to the warehouse I started digging I was there for over three hours looking through this place in the- measuring every couch and yeah, he's telling me the customer waiting on me and I'm like dude this is not here there's nothing that's 13 foot tall that is sitting here and let him that he actually it was there he uh, had two guys put it on top of the elevator and like literally it was hanging on our elevator that we had on top and it was uh, heading up there and I was like He's like, yep, you get to get it off there. And I'm like, oh, no, you can't get me. It took me learning another two hours to get it off there and then get it down. <laughs> Downstairs. This thing was 600 pounds. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> less, that's less of a prank and more, like, poor management skills. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's seven. Uh, I love it all. You get know, you just have background and no basement. We always get to you know a guy with yep. a week or so. And I'm like, hey, don't you go to the manager and ask him, can you get the left-handed hammer in the basement. Left-handed hammer. Yep. Yeah. Every, yep. So you go to, yep. well, left-handed hammer in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> go Go See, and that one works because they're going to bring you a hammer, and you'd be like, no, man, the left-handed. That was right-handed, right? <laughs> and then you can actually play that one up a little bit more. Go I ahead, Ezra. Common sense. Yeah, like I know what type of person working with. Yeah, right? It's, it definitely weeded people out. Go ahead, Ezra. So at my work... Um, the vice president has a little dog in Cocoa. There's a little white fluffy dog. and It's not a dog, that's a cat. <laughs> Anyways, continue. <laughs> they, they always make fun of me because I don't pet it because I don't have a heart. So I don't <laughs> play with or, or anything. And, um, so one day we, I had to meet them somewhere and they had the dog in the truck and she got out and she ran around. So I grabbed her and picked her up and brought her over the truck. I took a picture of me holding this little tiny fluffy dog. Like, oh, now we have evidence that so you actually do love... That film. you actually do have a heart? And then You denied it. A few days later, I got to work in the office and they have a poster. A picture of me holding a little dog and on the bottom it's written... Handsome dog lover looking for a beautiful woman. <laughs> <laughs> How's that working for you? So <laughs> <is so> <laughs> yeah, giving everybody ideas here. You guys can feel free to use any of this stuff at work and be like my pastor done told me. Go, ahead, Caleb. Go ahead. You got one more. Well, I know he's not here, but Eric, when he first started at Western States. It was like one of the very first jobs he designed the sprinkler system for and he was in charge of everything. The design, the ordering of parts, all of that. So he ordered the parts and they got sent down to the site and the site foreman called him and he told him all of his uh, pipes were threaded the wrong way (laughs) and he ordered all the wrong parts. And so Eric thought he just messed everything up yeah. and lost like forty thousand dollars. Is- yeah, that's that's about that's a thing that'll just about tank you. They don't the pipes the wrong way. Oh. Yeah, it's not a it's not a thing it's not a thing. Yeah, it's fine. So the reason I bring some of these things up is because actually, and this is a beautiful thing, um, these coworker pranks are a very natural thing. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but these things actually transcend culture as well. Uh, when I was in Mexico, uh, I remember a, a very, very particularly warm day, and we're building this school, right? And uh, and one of the guys I thought was a little bit weird, the pastor, usually is the guy who gives you all of the instructions, because down in that culture, the pastor's in charge of everything. And so he's the guy coming to give you instruction, and the pastor didn't come and give me instruction. Actually, one of his second or third-hand guys, who, who was supposed to be the foreman, came and he said, Hey, you guys, come dig this hole. Right And so we dig, and he goes, "No, deeper, And we're digging this hole, and he had, he wanted it seven feet deep, OK? So I mean, we're digging this hole, and we're having to pull each other out of the hole in order to go get water and all that stuff, and we're put a ladder in there and to get in and out of it, and all, all that good stuff. And, and then he goes at the end of it, he goes, "Okay, that's deep enough. Now fill it back in. Sorry, OK. He goes, no, 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 it's okay. You have to fill this back in because that is how we test for the footings. And so we fill it back in. The next day he says, here, come here, come dig this hole again. And he's got this smirk on his face. And we're like, oh, come on. And sure enough... He just didn't have anything else to do but but, uh, pick on the white guys. And so he made five of us dig a seven-foot hole and fill it back in and was planning to make us dig it again and fill it back in. And we found out that four years prior, this same guy had played this prank on a crew of people that had brought down. I wasn't part of that crew, and he played that prank on them for two weeks. They dug the same hole, filled it back in, dug the same hole, filled it back in the entire time they were down there. Yeah, that is breathtaking, isn't it? It's breathtaking. I mean, if you can imagine digging a seven-foot deep hole in the Mexican sun. That's what people do in prison camp, but that was what we call a mission trip. But these are things that everyone does. In fact, this just happens. And the reason it happens is because it's, uh, it's how we build... Uh, the tapestry of life. We call this shared experience is what we call this. You ever, I'll, I'll kinda, I'll kinda illustrate this, this this way. Have you ever taken one of these pranks and tried to explain it to somebody and they just don't find it nearly as funny as you do? Mm-hmm. Just happened actually. Cause Ezra probably finds this particular prank with this poster way funnier than any of us do. Maybe not so funny. But anyways, but this is what happens is he's sharing a shared experience with us who have not had the benefit of the depth of relationship that that shared experience comes with. And you get this at work, whether you have, uh, you get this at work, at home, uh, in your ministries, whatever you're doing, you get these shared experiences with people where you're linking shoulders arm to arm with them, and you're doing things, and as you're doing things, out of that comes the depth of relationship that is a beautiful thing, and actually creates, um, it, it gives us fullness of life. Okay, today what we're going to take a look at is we're going to take a look at Nehemiah. But I want to warn you, uh, Nehemiah chapter three is one of those chapters like um, oh a genealogy in Leviticus. It uh, if you haven't read it, if you didn't uh, do the study in advance, um, you haven't learned this. But this is basically just a list of names. Okay, And I'm going to read a few things, but I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to highlight a few things out of Nehemiah, but I'm not going to read the entire chapter. And what this is going to do is I hope this is going to launch us from Nehemiah chapter 3 into several other things. And I'm hoping to help you see something that I think is quite a beautiful thing. So, Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we're at. But before we do this, I have to do my Nehemiah introduction. We have to We have to do this. So, uh, Nehemiah was written about events that happened about 450 to 500 years before Jesus. Okay, so before Jesus, 450 500 years, and where we find ourselves in Israel's history is, in the book of Nehemiah is that this has been uh, the Israelites have been exiled. They've been kicked out of the land of Israel. They've been kicked out of Jerusalem specifically. They've been kicked out of Jerusalem for not. Um, for not listening to God's word and for, for performing injustices and for actually marginalizing employment and, uh, and treating people who are, are working for them very poorly and oppressing the weak and the ones who are weaker than them. That's what they're kicked out of Israel for. Now, in order to give you this context, you've got to find your little bulletin handout thingy, this thingy with these little icons, because we've got to do this each week. I told you that we're going to do this each week, so this is the part where you should groan. Um, This is the part where we're going to learn the entire story of Israel. Okay, So you have these icons that on the side here that go along with the story of Israel, and I made up some hand motions because we're channeling our inner vacation Bible school, because after all, it is summer vacation. And so we're going to learn the story of Israel Okay, so the story of Israel starts off with creation. You got to give me the creation, all right? So it starts off with creation and then goes into the fall, so fall of humanity, then into the nations. Okay, that's when God says to Abraham, "I'm going to make your nations like uh, more numerous than the stars. I'm going to make your family more numerous than the stars." So we got creation, fall, nations. But then the nations, the nation of Israel, ends up in captivity. So you got to do that, captivity. Then out of captivity they are, they go, it's the exodus, so they are removed from captivity, and then they wander, that's that little foot thing. And remember we do this with our whole hand, not our finger, because that's creepy, whole hand is just fine. Okay, so let's, uh, let's catch up to that. So we got creation, fall, nations, captivity, exodus, wandering. Okay, so that brings us up to the promised land. They, they go into the promised land. You can see the little icon there, promised land. And in the promised land, they're given judges to rule over them and to help them. They're like the heroes of old. But instead of the judges, they want a king. So the area of the kings come in. Then they don't listen to God's word and God exiles them and then brings them back. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> talking about. Anyway, so we got uh, creation, fall, nations, captivity, exodus, wandering, promised land, judges, kings, exile, and return. That is the history of Israel up into Ezra and Nehemiah. And what's happening is they are returning from uh, whatever land they've been exiled to. And they're coming back with this desire to follow God's word. And why this is important is because what happens here is God's word becomes so important to them. They become so afraid of offending. God in His Word and, and offending God by, uh, by, by not obeying things. So they begin adding in more rules at this point in time in Nehemiah. And out of this rises the Pharisees. The Pharisees become key players in Jesus' day as Jesus runs up against them because they love God's Word, but yet they're studying God's Word and they don't know God's Word at all because He says, have, have you not read the words of God that declare about Me? So this is a really important turning point in Israel's history. And without understanding this, we don't understand what happens in the New Testament. Okay, So this is what's going on in Nehemiah. That's our introduction. Um, I would state that one of the biggest issues that cropped up in Israel was this oppression of workers, oppression of of, uh, of, empl- of people who are employed. It's a, bre- a breaking down of the working relationship in Israel. Um, the Bible actually talks about this quite a bit um, in Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel. Um, not only are the shepherds of Israel not watching out for Israel, but the people of Israel are actually oppressing their, their workers. They're oppressing the ones who have been employed uh, by them. So they haven't had a very good working relationship in fact there's this there's this rule there's this law that's kind of written into the um, into the old testament called the year of jubilee you ever heard that before year of jubilee year of jubilee if you don't understand it, it's every 49 years so every seven years you're supposed to the israelites are supposed to give the land rest they're supposed to not sow seed or grow crops they can um they're supposed to give the land some rest um, the Israelites don't actually obey that one, just so you know. But also, the year of jubilee, every seventh seven years, the year that they're basically supposed to reset their entire culture. All of the slaves are supposed to go free. All of the land is supposed to go back to who it was originally owned by. Everything's supposed to reset to ground level, and you're not supposed to sow for an entire year. You're not supposed to plant things for a year, and so you're supposed to give the land rest. Okay, The year of Jubilee is supposed to be God's way of saying, you know what, any injustice that has crept in, we're hitting the reset button right now, and you're going to once again rely on me every 49 years. The people of Israel never once, in recorded history, never once celebrated the year of Jubilee. Now think about that. This is God saying, if any injustice has crept in, we've got the Day of Atonement, we've got all these things, these sacrifices, we've got the temple worship system, we've got all of this stuff. And if anything's crept in, no matter what, we're still hitting the reset button and your culture's going to start over. And they never, ever once trust God in that. They go, you know what, God, we got this. We're pretty progressive, just so you know. We don't need that old-fashioned 49-year thing. And so that's one of the things that God says actually, they are that determines actually the time frame that they are gone for, that they're exiled out of the land for. And so this is a big deal. This, is, this has to do with the oppression of workers and, and with injustice creeping into the society. So that's all background to what's happening in Nehemiah. And all of a sudden what happens is Ezra and Nehemiah come back from exile, and as they step into, as they step into the culture, they're beginning to work again. Now think about this. God said, hey, you've messed up work for so long, you've oppressed people, I'm getting you out of the land. You haven't reset your own society, so guess what? I'm gonna reset it for you. Out you go. And now they come back in, because of God's sovereign hand, and they're beginning the working relationship again. Okay. Again, all background. Now, Nehemiah chapter 3. Again, I want you to just kind of scan it, and you'll see that there's this, and next to him worked him, and next to him worked him, and next to him worked him, for the entire chapter. But it starts off with, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. I just want to stop right there, okay? We're just going to get one verse in today. Maybe we won't get much further. But i got to get you to see this. This is one of the observations we can see from Nehemiah chapter 3. This is a beautiful thing. The priests begin to work first. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, what had happened is the priests were actually no longer, they were making the whole society serve them which was something that had crept in, one of those injustices that should have been weeded out by by the people of God following God's rules and the year of Jubilee happening. But these priests, are the priests before, were were oppressing people. They were holding law over their head. And now all of a sudden, a reversal. The priests are the first to begin to work. Nehemiah says, let's work. Priests begin to work. If you pop down a few more verses to verse 5, you see here, uh, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, or the Tekoaites. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. So you have these guys working shoulder by shoulder, shoulder by shoulder, until you get to the Tekoaites. And all of a sudden, they're working, but guess who decides not to work? Their fancy dancy bosses. All of their nobles, all the ones who feel like they're too good settles in right here. And Nehemiah makes note of it. Then pop down a few more verses to verse 8. You've got some names, you've got some names, you've got some names. In verse 8, Uziel, the son of Harhaya, one of the goldsmiths, man, I wish I would have named one of my kids Harhaya. One of the goldsmiths repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And so here we see in this section that it's not just not just construction workers that are working. Everybody's coming together. Everybody's coming together to do the work that God has set them out to do. Not only is it the priests, not only is it the Tekoaites, but all of a sudden you see goldsmiths and perfume makers. Perfume makers smell nice. What do you think they're going to do? They're like, I don't want to get all dirty and smell like concrete. No, it's okay. They are. They're digging in. And I bet you the goldsmith section was the blingiest part of the wall. And then if you move down to verse 13, right? again, we got names, 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 names. Then verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards or 1,000 cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. And you know, there's these people, there's always this person in every single work environment, right? The hyper-competitive guy, the guy who's like, well, this is Ray, actually at WestJet. Just so you know, and that's who this is. You can, you can fill. A, I, I can fill. I can fill a plane quicker than you. I guarantee it. And he's the one first on the truck. He's the one first out. And he's the guy running circles around everybody. Right under his. the guy running circles around everybody. He's got running circles around everybody because some guys have this competitive spirit, competitive nature. They're great workers. They're like in sales, you can do this. Hey, you know, you sold like six product replacement plants. Well, I sold like twenty-seven. So what up, right? Like there's these guys, and these guys are noted for they built a thousand cubits. They built they built a thousand cubits or five hundred yards of the wall as far as the dung gate They built this whole section. And they're like, we're gonna get to a thousand. Yeah. Looking down even further, jumping down to verse, all the way down to verse 24. We see these guys repairing, repairing, repairing. And actually, one of the things you need to know that I didn't put in here is everyone seems to be repairing right out in front of their own home. Now, why do you think that happens? They're repairing in front of their own home because what part of the wall are you going to rebuild the best? The one that protects yours. That's just a very natural thing, right? Like you got to have some investment as you work and as things are going on. But if we jump down to verse 24, what we see here is we see verse 24 next to him... Binui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle in the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Um, and actually, the translation's a little bit different in the NIV. But next to him, Binui, son of Henadad, would be. Um, would, it's mentioned that he's a Tekoaite. And so these Tekoaites that had already done a section, remember, and their nobles aren't quite there. They're redoing a section. Then in verse 28, we see in above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. So not only did the priests start the work, but what do you find them doing? Still working. Picking up a different section. They're like, you know what, we're done with our work. They could have said, we're done with our work, now you guys get busy. No, they said, we're done with our work, now we're going to come and help you, because we, in fact, the priests, if you notice, which is so awesome, the priests begin work not in front of their house, then later on, they're beginning work in front of their house. And finally, in verse 30, we have... Uh, Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shemaiah and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite living quarters. Now Hananiah appears in there a couple of times, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph, Zaleph was one of those guys who was a goldsmith, and so, or excuse me, a perfumer. So all of a sudden you've got a goldsmith and a perfumer still working together. These guys become working buddies. You ever had one of those guys, working buddies, where you're like, man, I'm so excited that I'm working with this person because they make the day go by so much better because they have great joy, they love working, they're good at what they do, and we laugh a lot. That's kind of what's happening here. So here you see just, I mean, it, it can be hard to actually pick apart things with just a list of names, but if you pay close enough attention, you can begin to see some of the things that are going on here. And what's happening is what we don't, I wanna, I wanna pay attention to what we don't see. What we don't see is we don't see one guy who's a boss pointing to everybody say, do, 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 do. You do not see that. Because you actually see Nehemiah jumping in there, you see the priest jumping in there, you see the entire people of God getting to work. This is a beautiful thing. What we do see, we see guys who are taking on sections of the wall. We see guys who are jumping to other sections. We see guys who are helping out. We see guys who are doing their job. The guys who are going a thousand cubits and, and they're competing against each other. We we see these type of things. We see guys who are hanging door posts. If you've ever hung a door, that's a big deal. You may have ever hung a door before. It's the most infuriating thing ever. The most inferior, this is like miraculous that these guys are hanging door posts and it's like done in a few days. Cause that never happens when you hang doors. So what we see here is we see a movement of God's people to work together to put the wall back up in order to keep opposition out of the city of God. So you see a movement of God, movement of God's people to put the wall up, to do the work that God's laid out for them, put up a wall to keep the enemy out of the city of God. And I ended up rewriting my entire sermon right before I got up here, so we're going to just go off on a few tangents at this point in time. That little idea right there of a movement of God's people to get to the work that God has laid out before them, to rebuild the wall that keeps the enemy from attacking the city of God. I don't know of a better mission statement, well, I guess I... a few better mission statements, this is a great mission statement for the church. This is a great mission statement for the church. Absolutely fantastic. I want to ask you this, this question. These guys, um, when Nehemiah gets to this place, when Ezra gets to this place, what they look around at is they see rubble everywhere. You see rubble everywhere. And they charge up the entirety of the people of God to start building this wall back up in order to keep the enemies out. In fact, you remember last week we talked about this, Nehemiah's reaction to this whole thing. He's like, look at what kind of trouble we're in. We don't even have a wall. The city of God is unprotected. So let me ask you this. When you stand in the rubble of your life, you're standing around and you're looking at stuff scattered around everywhere. What do you do? Some people I know, they sit down and they look at the rubble and they go, oh my goodness, look at all this rubble. What am I going to do with all this rubble? My life is in shambles. I'm just going to sit down and just, that's it, I'm done, can't rebuild. Some people are so overwhelmed by the destruction and the rubble in their life that they can't move. Some people look at the rubble and they start piece by piece just doing it themselves. How long is it going to take you to build a wall when you're doing it piece by piece by yourself? Anybody ever do that? I know Jake's done it a few times. Piece by piece, building, retaining walls all by yourself. It is agonizing. It's like digging a hole and filling it back in in Mexico. (laughs) Or do you look around you at the people of God and say, I got rubble everywhere. Come help me. I got rubble everywhere. Come help me. There's stuff laying around. My life fell apart. There's stuff hanging around. All this. There's just garbage everywhere. I need the people of God to come and help me rebuild. And not to over metaphorize this particular passage, but this is what I see God's people do. See, our calling is a beautiful one. Our, 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 uh, our life is a beautiful one. The Christian life that's been given to us, the, the outworking of the gospel, the gospel that breaks your heart and breaks your soul and fills you with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that's filled, that you're filled with, that is given to you is one that yearns for the people of God to work alongside of you. And I think one of the most destructive things a Christian can do is think that this is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ when it really is a public relationship, a public declaration of your relationship with Jesus Christ. We need each other. We need to work together. We need to work together using the gifts that God has given us. If you're a goldsmith or a perfumer, go ahead and make a wall that's blingy and smells nice. I don't care, but get the wall built. If you're a priest... It's not your job. Just you know, like this is me preaching myself. If you're, if you're a priest, well, actually, we're all called priests, right? That's uh, we're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation unto God. If you're a priest that has a, a spiritual responsibility, sometimes you got to swing a hammer too. And we've got to get, we've got to pick up each other and pick up this workload and work together. I've got a bunch of passages that I'm going to flip through and. I'm just going to read these things and I'll just ask you if you can turn to them if you're really fast at your Bible flipping, but I'm going to read these things. Galatians chapter 5, 13 and 14 says this. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians says that we've been given freedom So that we can love each other By serving one another arm in arm Christians work together This is what we do A lone Christian is a dead Christian eventually telling you that The enemy seeks to pick people off And what's the first animal in the crowd to be picked off The first animal in the pack to be picked off The one who is Alone and weak The one who's weak and alone But the one who's surrounded by the pack Never going to get taken down Romans 12, 1-8 says this. It says, "...Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are connected, and we work together as one body with one function. We have, excuse me, one mission. We have different functions in that mission, but we work as one body together. And what is that one mission? To bring glory to God... And to build up the wall to stop other people from being attacked. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16, I won't read all of this, but Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16 says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble. And gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then it jumps down to verse 11 and says, uh, if was he, it was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The whole idea here is that the people of God work together in the church. What we call this thing, this church gathering, this is the place where this body meeting is where we train For the ministry that has been laid out in front of us, which actually is strengthening the body. That's the ministry that's been given us. So we train for Christian ministry. My job is to train you to do the work of building up the body of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes in the American church we've got this flipped. We believe that it is my job to build up the body of Christ that you get to be a part of. No, it is completely reversed. It is my job, Nick's job, Jake's job, their elders, James's job, to train you guys, to train all of us to build up the body of Christ together. We do this all together. And then the last one, and this is a beautiful one, is in Philippians chapter 1. And I want you to see this one. This one you might want to turn to. Check this out. Philippians 1.27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Then this part, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. And then there's this whole instruction on working with an attitude and a heart like Jesus where we don't, we don't complain while we do it. We humble ourselves and we lift up other people. <laughs> See, and here's the deal. Christians work. According to this passage, Christians work... Together at the mission that God has given us to build up the wall, to protect the body, to build up the body, to strengthen the church. Christians work at this because it publicly declares Jesus and it's actually a a function of the gospel. It tells people about who Jesus is and about the reality that they face. So here's the bottom line. God has given you gifts. He has. He's given you gifts. He's given me gifts. He's given us life and breath and a job and a personality. Well, some of you, except for a few you, I know that you don't have personality. But uh, some of you, uh, well, he's given all of us a personality, I guess. Uh, he's given you a certain way of seeing things. He's given you a lens through which you see the world. He's given you passions. He's given you desires. He's given you something that as you see the world around you, your heart breaks in a certain way that mine doesn't. And he's given you a spiritual gifting, a Holy Spirit anointed, Holy Spirit empowered thing or things that you do as you, as you serve the body of Jesus Christ. It's the thing that fires you up and sanctifies you and brings you into a difficult, uh, tight, uh, difficult relationship with God sometimes where you're getting chewed up doing the thing that you love the most God gives you these gifts to keep these gifts to ourselves or to sit in the rubble all by ourselves to say hey God thanks for the gifts I'm going to use that in order to enjoy my life until I die and then I'll come see you that is it's outside of God's character it's outside of God's character what did God himself do God had every gift that has ever been made. God owns everything. And what did he do? He gave it all away. He gave it all away. He didn't say, I'm keeping all this. He said, here, have it. Here, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give this. I'm going to give up my son. I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to heal this world. And so our job from then on out is to work together. We're actually, it's almost like we're putting the puzzle of God's gifts back together as we work together. We, we put that back together and God is glorified as we put it together and as we work together with it. And so I'll just ask you this, as you sit about the rubble of your life, as you sit about the, your life and you look around and you see all these bricks scattered around you or all the gifts that God's give you, what are you going to do? Are you just going to start putting them together piece by piece? Or are you going to ask for the body to surround you and say, look, I need help, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know how I'm doing it, I don't know how to get involved, but I just want to see God move and work. That is what we do. It's the people of God working for the mission of God, for the glory of God. This is what we do. There are boatloads of ways you can get involved in this church, in this community, in this city, around the world. We can kick you out all over this globe. But your whole, the whole goal is, first of all, or the whole step, first step is, pray and get moving. Pray and get moving. Enough of this, I'm just going to come to church and check in. That It's not that it doesn't cut it. I'm just saying you're going to cut yourself off from an entirety of a life that you don't yet know is there for you. This all starts with prayer. Asking God to show us where we should start. And then ask your body, ask your brothers and sisters, where should I get involved? What do you see in me? How should I get moving? What should we get doing together? And sometimes it might be swinging a hammer. Sometimes it might be peeling some siding off. Sometimes it might be moving Robert's apartment. Sometimes it might be a lot of different things. But this is how we get involved, doing the work that God has laid out in front of us. So I'll just ask you this today. Will you ask God, where should I get involved? What should I do? How should I begin building the body up and the wall around this place? Lord Jesus, we come before you. Um, and I just ask that you would i don 't know I just ask that you'd help make sense of all this stuff. as we look at lists of names that have been etched thousands of years ago. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to see that even back then, this was a whole group of people getting together and moving and getting together and doing and getting together and working, not because that's how they earn their salvation, but because they see the value of protecting the body and protecting the people of God. Help us, Lord, to see that. Help us to see the beauty of what it means to serve one another, of what it means to lift one another up, of what it means to lock arms and lock shoulders with each other and to dig in with the things that You've given us to do. And Lord, help us to not be consumers, but to be workers together. And Lord, as we sing this song, I pray that we would move our hearts towards You as we move from this place to go do the work that You've given us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.